Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Jody Bird, Assistant Professor of American Indian Studies and English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma. We'll be discussing her new book, The Transit of Empire, Indigenous Critiques of Colonialism, just released from the University of Minnesota Press. This is a work of tremendous intellectual breadth and a poignant intervention on critical theory, which often relegates Indigenous criticisms to marginal places in the canon. If Phil Deloria's seminal work, Playing Indian, explored the conscious appropriation of symbolic Indianness and the perpetual U.S. quest for legitimacy, Jody Bird finds numerous moments where Indianness is actively disavowed, despite its constitutive and originary role in so much of settler society. This inquiry takes Bird from Shakespeare's Tempest to the Jonestown Massacre, from the origins of blues music to the transit of planets across the night sky. Traversing this wide terrain is a fundamental project. The insistence that colonization matters, that memory matters, that indigeneity matters. This intervention engages both the titans of critical theory and the discourse of mainstream politics, offering us new conceptual tools for decolonization. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hello, Dr. Bird. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Native American Studies. Today we're discussing your new book, The Transit of Empire, Indigenous Critiques of Colonialism. It's just released from the University of Minnesota Press and published in conjunction with the First People's New Directions in Indigenous Studies uh, Consortium. The intellectual breadth of this work you've produced is staggering, um, and I'm excited to dive in. But before we do so, I'm just hoping you can uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, um, I'm at the University of Illinois, where I'm an assistant professor of American Indian Studies and English. I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma, um, I grew up actually, though, in Valentine, Nebraska, um, which made me a sort of diasporic Chickasaw living um, in a border town next to Rosebud Reservation, which is, it really was really informative with how I kind of came into understanding the world just from having seen the, the structures of um, colonialism as it played out in Valentine and, um, and helped form who I was as a person all along. Sure. I'm hoping you can um, you can talk a little bit about how you came to write this book specifically. Um, you know the theoretical or, or intellectual traditions you're coming out of, or or, in, or are in conversation with here, and, and what sort of interventions on them you you wanted to bring to bear uh, in this work. Yeah, the, the book started a long time ago, and it started with sort of being a grad student. Right? We all go through grad school. Um, I was at the University of Iowa. Um, having finished a um, BA at the University of Nebraska, so I was sort of a Midwesterner all through this, um, in, a, in a way, and um, I got to Iowa, 
um, realized just how unique I was as a Chickasaw who grew up in Valentine and was sort of frustrated that the theory I was reading, the courses I was taking weren't really reflecting the world that I had seen up to that point in my life. Um, and so I wanted to try to, um, to find ways to bring indigenous peoples into a conversation about colonialism as, as I was sort of devouring post-colonial theory primarily as a way to, um, to, to develop a, a, a career in the academy. You, you write that um, in the prevailing understandings of, of race and racialization within um, not just post-colonial studies, but area studies and queer studies, um, you write that they depend on, on an historical aphasia of the conquest of indigenous peoples. I'm hoping you can elaborate a bit more on that and, and talk a bit more about what you saw as the limitations of post-colonial theory specifically. Well, post-colonial theory already contains a critique of its own project, I think, in the very nature of the way that which the post functions. A lot of people want to, and you know, it sort of is the sticking point in indigenous critical theory. Want, we want to understand the post as temporal, as, as something that happens after colonialism ends. Um, so certainly there's debates within post-colonial theory about um, the post being, the post-colonial starting at the exact moment colonialism starts. Um, but there's all these other debates about the post as, as something um, much more toward, uh, toward, toward the, how postmodernism functions. And um, the ways in which race and racialization start to, to inflect that, especially as, as these theories that were developed to address globalization, the, the um, larger history of particularly British um, imperialism, and then later U.S. imperialism abroad, um, it depended upon certain ideas about how the United States coherent itself as a, as a, a nation state, mm -hmm. about who was going to be included or excluded. And so when I talk about an aphasia of indigenous peoples, because there has been such a liberal investment in the idea that the United States as a nation state can remedy historical wrongs through more inclusion, from a Native perspective, that more inclusion is the culmination and fulfillment of the colonial project from the start. You also mentioned at some point that in a lot of narratives and academic treatments of U.S. imperialism, the narrative tends to begin in 1898, let's say. And I, I remember dealing with this last semester um, with a geography book I was reading, a, a real tome called American Empire by Neil Smith. It, you know, it was a trenchant mm -hmm. book. It was interesting, but it starts in 1898. I mean, this is the moment for him that imperialism or U.S. colonialism begins. Um, you know, what's wrong with that narrative and why, why is it so prevalent, do you think, in treatments of U.S. empire? Well, it's, it's kind of a consistent, it's, it's, it, and there have been attempts to sort of push it back to the um, Mexican-American war. Um, there's been attempts to push it back further. Um, of course, from, an, from Native studies perspective, U.S. empire starts at the exact moment the United States is created. But 1898 marks the point where the United States starts to look across ocean water to, um, to build colonial acquisition. So what happens is the naturalization of the continent as, um, as belonging to the United States, where water marks something that people have to traverse through in order to get somewhere. Um, and so it, it tends to invisibilize and mark the, the, the turning point as, as exceptional. Um, so it's consistent with the United States mm -hmm. policy all along. And speaking of um, sort of, um, you know, multi-continent 
transversals or, or transits. I want to uh, hope that you can pull apart a few terms that you use throughout this work. Um, sure. First first and foremost, the, the title of your work, Transit, and I'm, I'm hoping you can also talk about that in the context of a moment you refer to throughout the book um, in, in 1761 when European explorers scattered across the globe to observe and record this this planetary transit of Venus across mm-hmm. the face of the sun. Um, why is that moment important, and, ha- and how do you extrapolate out of that moment into this broader idea of transit? Yeah. Um, well, I was really struck by um, particularly the 1769 transit. They come in pairs, the transits of Venus, um, and uh, separated by about 120 years, and then each of the transits themselves are um, eight years apart within that 120-year cycle. It's, it's, um, they're, they're, so they're considered rare. They happen only once in a person's lifetime. Um, and ironically, the next um, transit that's coming up is um, in this June 6th, I think, actually, this 2012. Um, so it, there's, a, there's an anniversary of sorts. And, and from, from the sort of um, trajectories of it, it actually is um, mirroring almost exactly the 1769 transit that um, I cooked into the Pacific. Um, so I was, um, I heard about this um, story when I was um, on faculty at the University of Hawaii. We put together an indigenous governance um, class um, that, that we were teaching there with um, Guy Aggie Alfred and Jeff Hornpassel from the University of Victoria. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to do is political science class that we were um, wanting to make it interdisciplinary. So we brought in poets like Joy Harjo and Robert Sullivan to give readings. And Robert Sullivan is a Maori poet, and he's done an amazing um, um, amazing collections of poetry. Um, and in particular, he was commissioned to write an, um, an basically the opera um, for... Um, Captain Cook in the underworld, and so his work was really focused on the meaning of Venus within this larger trajectory of European colonialism. And it's it's such a it's a fascinating idea that you know European explorers are so obsessed with the stars that they're you know using these as the the cover for the colonial project that they're they're undertaking. Um, and you know, as I started to go through some of the primary documents, looking at people like John Ledger, um, Captain Cook. I was finding um, Hawaiians, for instance, remarking back to Ledger that um, Europeans are so obsessed with the stars that they, they must have come from there and it's time for them to go back. So there's like a counter-narrative that starts to happen in the discourse. And the, that idea of movement, of transversal, of, um, of transits themselves, um, became a way for me to think about what I was seeing, what I at least wanted to, to highlight in the ways in which we think about um, U.S. history in regards to indigenous peoples is that um, with all the emphasis on the frontier, we lose track of the ways in which indigenous pe- indigenous peoples and Indians, the idea of the Indians, are the actual way in which the United States constructs itself in relation to empire. It's the justification. It's the rationale. Um, you know, I, you know, we've we've often um, focused on the, the the frontier after Frederick Jackson Turner, the Indians ultimately fall out of that space, and I wanted to bring Indians back as the, the justifying that, um, narrative and, and show how they um, become the site through which everything transits, crosses through, moves, mm. as empire spreads out from, from, from England to the east coast of the United States to Hawaii. Um, it manifested in 
particularly interesting ways too with you know from the start where Benjamin Franklin not only is trying to learn about the Haudenosaunee Confederacy but he's already envisioning um, New Zealand as a as a site for colonization as something that belongs to and should be part of the United States as, as the possible you know ends of, of what US Empire imagines for itself at this 1769 moment yeah and reckoning with that certainly changes, again, you know, how we draw the narrative of even overseas empire building, if it was already so much in the consciousness of yeah. settlers in, in the, you know, in the late 18th century. Um, I also want to, you also return in, in several places throughout the work um, to a concept in Southeastern Indian cosmologies, the, the Haksuba, and I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, or, and you translate it as a cacophony. Um, yes. Can you speak a little bit about this idea of cacophony and, and haksuba and, and, and why or, or how you, you utilize this, this term in the criticisms you're making in this work? Well, the notion of the haksuba comes from um, Leanne Howe's work, particularly um, a short story called The Chaos of Angels, where she um, sort of maps out at the beginning of the story the uh, sort of the foundational notion of um, Southeastern cosmology. Leanne House, Choctaw, I'm Chickasaw, we're related um, communities. We have a, a deep and long history and, and many cultural similarities. And um, the, she uses the um, um, Hoxoba in that story, she translates it as chaos, but um, the, another definition of it is the, the, a loud deafening noise. And um, I wanted to have both the notion of the chaos, because one of the things within Southeastern cosmologies is um, it, it, we, can, we construct worlds that are um, existing in complementar- complementarily. We have the upper world and the lower world. Um, and then um, this world, the, the one that we live in, the middle world, has to find a balance between what's happening between the upper and the lower world. Um, when one thing comes out of balance, if there's too much of of um, the influences of the upper world, then things tip um, are too rigid. If things are too much in the um, lower world, um, more and more chaos gets introduced. And the goal for any you know, right-minded Chickasaw or Choctaw is to find ways to to balance out both of those. And so colonialism introduced this this imbalance, for lack of a better word, into the ways in which southeastern worlds functioned. And um, as, a, as a sort of unifying narrative, I, I was really fascinated with the idea of, the, of the, the, the kind of clamoring noises of everything needing to have a perspective of voice, um, especially when we're looking at the United States, which in, you know, ties itself to a certain kind of individualism um, and subjectivity that um, you know, asserts injury in order to be redressed by the state, that the more and more that those individual injuries of historical injuries continued to articulate themselves, they had to do it at the cost of recognizing other other people's other perspectives, other individuals who themselves may be in fact injured as well. And um, how does one find balance in that that is um, attuned to historical violences and to the, the broader um, network of power and, and um, oppression? That was the question that I wanted to try to think through in my book. Whether whether I achieve that or not, I don't know. But the the effort of trying to think through it was, for me, um, you know, important for finding what could possibly be um, a southeastern approach to understanding critical theory. 
Mm. I mean, you you ask a number of, of profound questions in this book, and I, and I do think that you address them. I also hope that they also um, spur on further uh, scholarly investment. What, some of the questions that you pose, particularly in the beginning of chapter two, that lead into your discussion of the Tempest, um, it, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, I, I'd love to read a couple of them because I think they're um, incredible. Um, how did the impulse to constellate the Americas into European colonial alignment come to depend upon the lamentable but ungrievable Indian? What do you mean here by the ungrievable Indian? Um, well, that was something I discussed in the first chapter to some extent, um, building off of the questions that um, Judith Butler, Butler asks in some of her more recent work about the war on terror um, after 9-11, um, and the notion of what one what a life has to do in order to be aggrievable within the larger narratives of nation states. And one of the things that has always struck me is that American Indians are lamentable, right? We need to owe the poor Indian. Um, there's always a story of, you know, Indian loss, Indian deprivation. Um, but, but there is no real space in which to actually grieve the amounts of people who have been destroyed through the acts of, through the militarism, the violences of colonialism. Mm. And so, um, because there's this lack of believability at that level, um, there's actually, it's really hard to do anything to apprehend to, to really take stock, um, and the, the apprehend goes in two directions, take stock and understand and stop mm. the, the, the violences that continue to destroy Native lives and other lives. I mean, it's not just American Indians caught in this, and I hope that's what my book was also trying to show, mm-hmm. is that if we take Indians and put them into conversation with histories of, of slavery, and certainly Southeastern Indians were complicit with that, if we take it and bring it into conversation with things like Japanese-American internment, um, all of these things sort of align and are working together, which is why, I, you know, for me, that notion of cacophony was so important, is how do we hold on to multiple sites of historical violences and try to put them into balance in a way that addresses and, re- and engages what's happened primarily to indigenous lands yeah. and indigenous well, peoples. I want to return to a few of the points um, you just mentioned a little later on. Um, but I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the Tempest. Um, you talk about it specifically in, in the context of the Columbus Quincentennial in, in 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the significance of, of the Tempest in that moment, um, 500 years after uh, the invasion of Columbus? Well, that's a, a big question. Yeah. But it's surprisingly also really relevant right now. I've just been watching some of the news come through about books banned in Tucson, where sure, the Tempest yeah. is one of those books that have been banned. I noticed it's that myself. That... I heard an interview this morning. It was it was it was shocking, and but it, but I guess it kind of leads you it leads you into the multiple ways in which the Tempest can be read. Right. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, it was you know in some ways people are trying to claim it too as the foundation of genre yeah. of of fantasy and science fiction. The Tempest has always been this a rather. Um, interesting play. It's, it's not not anybody's favorite necessarily, but it's, you know, really rich in the ways and, and, and complicated in the ways in which Shakespeare was trying to grapple with the discovery of the new world at the moment he's writing it and then, you know, placing it within, you know, this kind of, um, I don't know, allegorical geography that, that links it to both the Mediterranean, Africa, and the new world. And it sort of hovers between all three locations as it tries to grapple with the emerging discourses of colonialism that are, that are about to be deployed. 1992, of course, 
with the with that the quincentennial because the tempest was a story about um the new world and and discovery and slavery it had a certain kind of um um ability to speak to the, the historical moment yet again. And one thing that I, 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 it's so hard to, you know, think about Shakespeare, the idea that he's being banned is, is, is stunning in, in Tucson. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, horrifying all my colleagues in grad school because I would always ask, you know, why is she, why do we read Shakespeare? Why is he great literature? <laughs> yeah, sure. Almost, <laughs> and yet, you know, I can't, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's an almost uh, an interesting, uh, you know, a, a point to his testament that he would even be banned. It's, you know, all the other usual suspects were in that list. I mean, books that you can immediately see the political relevance in Occupied America and the history of Chicanos and then the Shakespeare's right. in there. It's very, very confusing. It makes me want to reread Shakespeare. <laughs> and it speaks to the amount of work, I think, that, um, of, um, you know, African writers, Caribbean writers, American Indian writers have done in order to sort of reimagine and reclaim Caliban particularly. Yeah. Um, now, in your third chapter, um, you explore an event uh, which, which I admittedly knew little about, um, the Jonestown Massacre in Guyana in 1978. Um, in fact, you point out that and there's this meme that, that exists, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, and, you know, I've, I've certainly heard it. It's, it's almost ubiquitous in political culture. Right. I, I didn't know the origins of it myself. Probably even people who did know the origins um, weren't necessarily with familiar with the degree to which Jim Jones, um, the leader of this Jonestown commune, called upon notions of Indianness um, in in his religious community there, and as well as in um, reasons for the mass suicide that ultimately ends the, the community. Um, I'm hoping you can um, talk a bit about how this fits into the larger project of your book your criticism particularly of some of the writing about Jonestown um, and, and, and also how it helps us as you write, examine the compelling and contradictory impulses of social justice within Imperial context. I know, again, these are large questions that your whole book addresses, but if you can introduce the listeners to, to this issue in your book, that would be great. Sure. The Jonestown part was probably one of the hardest things to write. Um, so, I, you know, I say that, and then I think, you know, the Friedman chapter was also really hard to write. But to, to delve into, um, you know, the, the deaths, the 900 deaths that occurred and in, in the suicide that, that occurred there, or the mass murder, I think it depends on how you view Joan, Jim Jones, was, was really difficult because, it, because it's so easy to dismiss Jim Jones as um, a crazy man. And that's partly why it is that drinking the Kool-Aid can circulate the way it does is because it becomes almost a punchline as opposed to um, a, a real need on the part of, of the United States, Guyana, to, to grapple with the lives lost. And so, you know, back to that notion of grievability, what does it mean to, to you know, grieve for, for these histories for, and to grieve for these experiences to see how... Um, in what started as um, a really revolutionary I, um, social religion that Jones constructed ends up sort of in, ends up so horribly wrong. Um, it was it, it's really difficult to, to to sort of chart that, and then to see you know I a lot of people have written about the about Jim Jones. I mean I'm just thinking about the ways in which it circulates even. Or most recently this summer, right, one of the major songs that came out um, by the Colts um, uses Jim Jones 
um, for the song Go Outside. Um, they they um, are using historical footage of the Jonestown Massacre and the People's Temple to um, create a song about that um, just essentially resisting somebody who wants to stay inside where they'd rather go outside as if the way in which to think about the um, cult itself is, is about mind control. Um, and all these things sort of collapse in on themselves. For me, what was really stunning and again really difficult to look at was um, how in the exact moment of um, the, the the night, the, the final white night that Jim Jones um, orchestrated, that there ends up being a movie discussion between Jim Jones and um, um, an African-American woman who is the only person to stand up to say suicide isn't the answer for us. And um, as I kept looking at that, and people have talked about that moment a lot in the scholarship, people have returned to it as a sign of, you know, this, um, you know, her attempt to, to really save everybody at, at the um, at Jonestown. And they, nobody had ever really talked about the fact that the movie that they're using as the site for their debate, the philosophical debate about life and death and, and the options facing them, is actually a movie about American Indians. And for me, that was, you know, exactly kind of the point of my book, which is that Indians become the site through which all of these different um, ideas of social justice, of, of um, violence, um, manifest themselves. It, they emerge almost like a return of the repressed to, to evoke something from Freud. It, it's almost like because it's so American, because, the, you know, the destruction of Native peoples, the colonization of Native lands is so ingrained into every structure that, that um, informs how the United States functions, it, of course, becomes the site through which um, people start to effectively, um, emotionally invest themselves into. In, in the, I can in, probably keep going, I guess. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's up to you. Um, oh, you know, this is probably also the moment to re- reiterate to our listeners that as, uh, as in-depth as this conversation has been thus far, it's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of, <laughs> of what you offer in this book. Um, but we can move on here to talk to talk a bit about a, another difficult subject, um, which okay. is the, the subsequent chapter about Cherokee freedmen um, what you, right. and what you call the racialization of citizenship. This section starts with a with a fascinating story. Uh, in 1901, uh, the archaeologist Charles Peabody traveled from his perch at Harvard to burial mounds in Mississippi to disinter and disturb and rob the remains of most likely Chickasaws and Choctaws. Um, to do the manual labor required, uh, Peabody hires African American workers, which and with which and he ends up writing about blues music, which he hears right. them singing in, in the labor. Tell us a bit more about this story and why you chose this as an introduction to your discussion of Cherokee Friedman. Yeah, and one of the things I, I used to joke about as working on the book is that my method was, was primarily to take an event or you know, something that um, people thought they knew a lot about and then show how Indians were at the center of it. Um, and and I, I say that, um, and yet it is you know surprisingly true. Is like you know you wouldn't think you know stop talking about the chapter before that um, Jim Jones um, and the, the suicides at Jonestown had anything to do with Indians, except you know of course Jim Jones claimed at certain points he talked on Cherokee, and then of course the, the what I found in the in the in the transcripts of the death the death tape, and then in the in the case of um, um, Peabody and, and the mound and the birth of the blues and what, to what I say the white 
academic consideration. Um, when it was it was surprising to realize that because everybody tells a story about Peabody, it's kind of like the starting point when people try to describe the origins of the blues. Um, they they turn to that because because it was a documentation of the of the music by an anthropologist, um, even though a course blues had existed prior to Peabody hearing it. Um, it often became a you know starting point for a, a lot of the books that I looked at, and you know people would, those those same scholars would sort of gloss um, Native people's presence or the fact that you know the South was you know site that had um, peoples that were in it at you know prior to anybody else being there, and um, I was I've always been influenced by um, musicians and and thinkers like Joy Harjo who. Um, um, been spending a lot of her work bringing in to poetry the, the blues traditions of the South. She argues that the Muscogee Creek had to have had something to do with the creation of the blues, if only through the shared space of these, you know, these histories overriding themselves into um, southeastern Indian land. Artists like Jura Fay doing um, significant work musically to make the argument to show um, sonically or to make perceivable, the, the, um, the blues progressions, the, the chordal um, no, notable changes that um, are inherent within traditional Southeastern song dance music and what has become blues. Um, and so for me, when I started with that story, the fact that it was the burial mounds, and again, this is the largest theme of grievability, the fact that those workers um, are having to disinter peoples that they may in fact be related to and a story that Southeastern Indians may not always want to tell, um, that, that seems incredibly powerful. And then to link next, the next move I make in that is to show that within some of the stories about the um, origins of corn, the mounds are tied to a woeful sound, a woeful singing that came out of them. So the, the, I, I you know, almost think at times when I was working on the, on the book, that the, in the stories that Southeastern Indians have linked the blues to the land itself, to, to how it comes out of and emerges from the very creation of some of the major food sources that Southeastern Indians survived on. Which isn't to say that um, Indians created the blues. Um, I don't, because I don't ever want to make that claim for us, but that it emerged out of, again, the confluence of colonization, slavery, the overriding of the um, It's interesting when you, when you mention that a lot of your work in this book is about um, moments where Indians are present or at the center of it, or at least some sort of Indianness is mobilized. In, in some ways, it seems very related, but also the inverse of, of Phil Deloria's uh, playing Indian, where you have people consciously appropriating um, you know, notions or sim symbols of Indianness, whereas here you have disavowals of it and deferments of it and um, right. in, intentional or unintentional forgetting of it. It's um, right. interesting uh, contrast. Um, in this chapter, you also you address uh, the modifier internal that's that's added often to right. colonialism, the idea of internal colonialism. What's problematic or useful for you here in, in the concept of internal colonialism? Um, for me, what was problematic, I think, is the, the spatialization that starts to occur with it. And because it's 
it, it emerged, I think, in the, the genealogy I tried to show um, as it came into um, critical theory, internal colonialism has often been a metaphor for a certain kind of economic disenfranchisement and economic repression within a state. Um, and, and because it had that um, delineation and, and function, um, the ways in which American Indians were um, external and brought into the United States falls away. And you discussed. So the, the, yeah, go ahead. Go. I was just going to say, so so the the emphasis on the internal in the internal internal colonialism ends up being like again a way of talking about economic or racial um, and um, oppression rather than um, you know colonization that happens you know in in the form of, of bureaucratic administrative colonialisms in India. Um, it becomes a, a, a marker of something different, something that states do to their own people. Mm. Yeah. Now, your, your discussion um, of the issue of Cherokee freedmen, and I'm assuming in, that our listeners have some familiarity with it, um, so we don't need to sort of reiterate the entire political history in recent years. But at the end of the, the chapter, you, you suggest that you want to move beyond um, some of the common themes that emerge in these discussions, whether it's um, you know, whether the expulsion is a, is a matter of competition over resources or, or the congressional response is an attack on in, indigenous sovereignty or, as some have suggested, a, a reenactment of removal. Right. What, are, what are these refrains missing for you? And, and where do you hope the conversation goes instead with respect to the Friedman issue? Well, the, the Friedman issue is, is something that has to be addressed by Southeastern Indians. And so I, um, in the book, talk about the Cherokee. Certainly the Chickasaw, um, my own tribe, has our own history that we still have yet to, to really um, grapple with in our nation. Um, it, it, it's something that um, it can't be resolved through um, the, the standard ways in which we've set these, these debates up, as you've already sort of laid out, right, the competition. We can't have it be, you know, a bunch of outsiders, you know, freedmen being a bunch of non-native outsiders who are coming in to take things from Indians yet again. These things are much more complicated, in part because slavery itself was a, was a um, you know, hideously victimized, a hideous institution that um, destroyed people's connection to family. It um, destroyed people's privacy and, and ability to hold on to, this, to their own bodies. Um, all of those things... You know, how does one even delineate blood quantum in relationship to that when race and, and ownership start to determine who, how people are related? So I, one of the things I tried to move us toward at the end of this chapter was an idea of kinship sovereignty. And, and that was a, um, an idea that for me was to look at the ways in which institutions in Southeastern Indian nations have, instead of blood quantum, as the necessary identity marker for um, inclusion into the nation, and certainly the, the Cherokee Nation was using the Indian blood mark, um, and in, the, they sort of reiterated Indian blood as necessary to be Indian. In the case of the freedmen, they didn't have proof that they had in, any Cherokee blood. Um, but, but to instead um, look at kinship sovereignties, which um, tie to the responsibilities and relationships that occur through you know, bringing people into one's family or be, bringing people into one's lives requires a kind of um, reciprocity that um, Southeastern Indians have not yet fulfilled. 
do you hope that um, that this work will have some some resonance in in the broader conversations about that issue? Um, I, I I do hope that I do hope um, you know it's, it's such a contra- it, it is really controversial. It's really difficult to talk about. It's really difficult to parse because I mean there are there are the problems of the ways in which we have approached these topics in the past where we do center on the competitions of history of, of certain allowing certain narratives and historical um, historical experiences to take precedent over others. And certainly, you know, in the United States, we have sustained conversations about racism um, that occur through popular culture at different sites, whether or not those are, are uh, uh, actually what we, they should be, um, certainly is, is up for debate. But, you know, we don't have the same kind of prevalent discussion about colonialism and its history in the United States on those levels. And so American Indians uh, were often... Were often Forgotten in relationship to this, um, and that, and it's often assumed that you know, just by talking about race um, is already dealing with the history of, of, of colonization of American Indians. Mm. And so, yeah, I do hope that um, this the, the framework that I've um, tried to articulate in this chapter um, helps to to um, give us new directions that we might um, have for opening up these conversations in ways that. Um, can point us towards solutions instead of sort of spinning through the controversies and the problems and the competitions of, you know, whose story gets to have precedent. Mm. Now, in, uh, moving off this issue somewhat and, and, and broadening a little as we, as we get closer to the end of the discussion, um, this book and, and many of the chapters is in conversation with theorists um, that come from a variety of different fields from, you know, Judith Butler and Slavoj Žižek and then, Deleuze and Guattari, a lot of things that are um, often difficult for, for me as a historian to wrap my head around. But I'm wondering sure. if, um, if, if, you, if you hope or, and, and see a possibility for just as you take up these um, theoretical issues raised by uh, you know, people like Zizek or Butler, that, that you see any possibility or hope that they might in turn read and consider the kind of criticisms that you as an indigenous scholar are bringing to bear and in conversation with them. If, if you've seen any indication that that's a conversation that might happen between these sort of, you know, rock stars of high theory and people who are, you know, and people who are trying to, to bring a, 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 a reckoning with U.S. settler colonialism to bear, whether you see some possibilities for that. I think um, as, um, especially because of the First Peoples Initiative, because Presses like um, University of Minnesota Press, which has published my book, are really um, sort of showing huge commitment to um, publishing Indigenous scholars the last couple of years and into the, you know the next in the few years to come. That I think we're we're starting to see a, a movement towards a critical mass of conversation, and I think that um, scholars outside of Indigenous studies are going to have to grapple with the work that we're putting out there, um, whether you know wherever they choose to take it up. Um, it's it's hard to think about um, theories theory stars um, in that way, um, just because you know I haven't I don't know um, what people read um, or you know certainly one hopes that the things that you write and put out into the world um, influence conversations, um, but I I think it's kind of a long game um, in the end for indigenous critical theory. It's 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 an emergent um, conversation um, and. You know, I think as more and more people come to it, they hopefully will find that there's potentially something useful there um, and, and answers to the questions that have sort of haunted all of us 
as we've dealt with the historical violences that created the United States. Along those lines, um, I want to return briefly to some questions you pose in the third chapter, and I, I found them to be incredibly moving and, and important to bear in mind when bear in mind when reconstructing these histories. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to read again a few of them out loud. Um, you ask, "What does it mean to take responsibility for historical present dependent upon middle passages, indentured labor, and the violences of conquest, in which the explicit goal was not just to rupture?" in the name of enforced labor, but to charter the direct transit from life to death for certain peoples and not others. And a little later you ask, how might one redress such histories where dislocated arrivals facilitate dislocated removals? How might one imagine radical justice that addresses the cacophonies of colonialism? Obviously, these are big questions, and you don't attempt here to give a definitive answer to them. You do suggest some things. Um, But I'm, I'm hoping you can just talk a little bit about what direction um, we might at least start moving in, you know, n- not just as scholars, but but maybe in the in the political discourse at, at large, when we try to wrap our heads around, you know, this idea of radical justice and, and addressing colonialism. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, again, it, it, it's that long view of history of understanding that the United States is what it is, even its economic crises. Um, have all emerged and functioned um, in re- direct relationship to colonial policies against American Indians. I mean, we can see this in, you know, the linkage between um, U.S. war on terror, the way Osama bin Laden becomes Geronimo. Um, this, this large historical trajectory shows, I think, that radical justice depends upon what I, what, you know, I hope I can show in the book, which is that indigenous peoples have to be fully functioning and present within the um, larger political um, movement that, that we are imagining as, as the site of, of social justice. And as, we, um, as we near the end of our time together today, uh, I have to just ask, um, as, a, as a major devotee of zombie films, um, <laughs> what exactly, um, what does zombie imperialism mean to you? And you bring this term up in the, in the conclusion. Um, what do you mean by zombie imperialism? Um, I had one last thought on the question before, and then I'll sure, talk about zombie sure. imperialism. I'm, I'm sorry. In part because, yeah. um, I was, you know, trying to keep track of all the different pieces moving in my head. It's, it's besides the please, uh, please, yeah. daily endeavor. Um, in the third chapter, um, I do a close reading, a, a very long reading of um, a Caribbean author named Wilson Harris, who is um, one of the first Caribbean writers to really try to address indigenous peoples. And while he maybe doesn't do it um, in ways that break out of some of the romanticism and primitivism that have been assigned to indigenous peoples, he, he asks one question for me, or there's a moment in, in his novel Jonestown that for me... Um, exemplifies, I think, part of what radical justice might entail. And that's where the um, narrator, who is the right-hand man to um, Jim Jones, um, Jonah Jones in the novel, um, he finally reconciled himself to his responsibilities to history. And as he's standing on the top of of a mountain um, and he's being judged by the indigenous people there, he initially tries to refuse them. And then he finally says, judge me, judge me for being a colonial even though he is himself, you know, descendants of slaves, of indigenous peoples, of Europeans, he sees himself as culpable 
mm-hmm. and he places himself into their hands for their judgment. Mm-hmm. And so there, that, that sense of, 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 um, of culpability, of um, needing to see oneself as accountable to indigenous presences is part of what I would say is, is necessary for radical justice within U.S. empire. It reminds me of a term you raised in this book that I had, I had never come across, but um, seems very essential is, is this, the, the difference between settlers and arrivants, which mm-hmm. is, which is um, it's something in the language that, that I, I sort of always felt was missing that I'd never kind of been, I'd never come across it until your book. Um, what, what is meant by arrivants as opposed to settlers in, in this discussion? There's been a lot of in, uh, push towards articulating settler colonialism. It has always been within post-colonial theory, sort of a way to talk about Pakeha, white people in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, to talk about the, 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 the folks that come from England as a mother country and do the work of colonialism on the ground. And certainly they are in a, in a precarious position in regards to the fact in, in what had functioned with regards to the theory um, that they see themselves as caught between the power of the, of the mother country and the authenticity of the native. And so you constantly sort of place all the, all the responsibility and focus onto the settler misses, at least in the United States context, a vastly more complicated um, relationship. I mean, it's untenable to refer to African Americans as settlers mm-hmm. because of the history of slavery. And yet, um, African American labor through slavery was, you know, part of the process through which indigenous lands were stripped and were stripped from South African Indians. Um, it's 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 untenable to refer to people who seek asylum in the United States because of U- U.S. military imperialism in mm-hmm. Vietnam and, and around the world to see them as settlers, even though their presence in the United States impacts indigenous lives. Mm-hmm. And so by focusing on arrivance, for me, was a way to, to problematize and draw attention to the fact that colonialism is, is, not, is, is not just the work of settlers, um, but requires a much more um, nuanced and um, I don't know, hopefully generous understanding of the forces that have created the problem indigenous peoples in the United States are facing right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, now now I have so to zombie yes, yes, and I, I didn't I didn't mean to make a flippant transition. It's ob, it's obviously a, you know a, a serious thing you're addressing at the end, but um, but I of course was taken with the metaphor that you chose. So hoping you can speak about that for a moment. Yeah, I'll try to do the best I can. Um, you know, in some ways, this is it also sort of um, it's a place that I'm going to um, jump off to the next book um, on. Um, I was, I've always been sort of a fan of genre, especially fantasy, science fiction. I'm a, a closet um, video game player. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so and, and, and there's been a, a huge rise in obsession with zombies. And I was interested, they, zombies have, you know, they're very much a new world product that comes exactly out of the history that I chart in the book, right? It's, it's something that comes out of the Caribbean through the African slave trade. It's a critique of colonialism. Um, and it's something that, you know, gets taken up in the 1970s with Romero as a critique of whiteness. Um, and then after 9-11, it starts to turn into sort of a sphere of the, the mindless terrorist other um, destroying, you know, bastions of civilization. So 28 Days Later, all those types of films 
um, start to show the anxieties that um, get mapped into what was initially a critique of whiteness becomes appropriated by whiteness to critique um, the hordes of you know unwhite, non-white um, masses who um, threaten everything that we hold dear, um, i.e. the um, United States mm -hmm. and, and the, yeah, <laughs> to be clear. Um, and so I was interested in that term, and I was interested, you know, because I had talked about um, Zizek and, um, you know, linking all of this into you know, broader narratives of you know, work that Butler has done, um, Jasger Puar has done in terrorist assemblages, seeing that, you know, the ways in which um, even Agamben talks about um, in, in his work, the, the site of the camp, understanding which, dead, which bodies count as dead, um, was, you know, again, really, you know, a way for me to, to open up um, this notion of grievability, of lamentable, and um, understand you know, the, the biopolitics behind um, how the United States is, is um, bringing together the laws in order to prosecute and torture um, the people it sees as, as standing in its way. It's interesting when you when you speak about the genre and, and how they um, and how different symbols in these different genres um, suggest different things. Um, I was thinking recently about what makes um, certain villains in in horror films or in action films or suspense films so much more frightening than others. And and the zombie, similar to um, a figure like the Joker in in The Dark Knight, they're figures that um, are completely outside of rationality you can't reason with them they they aren't um they aren't motivated by the same by by greed or by fear or by or by, by human emotions that are comprehensible to the hero or the you know right. the protagonist and um it's interesting to think how that discourse is is used similarly in, in things like the war on terror um, right well and that and then i you know i sometimes when i teach a course on um American Indian genre, I start with something like Mary Rawlinson and her captivity narrative, which is the quintessential zombie attack with mm. you know Indians coming out mindlessly slaughtering everything to capture people and and to captivate them right to turn them into themselves mm. and so that you know this this even though the um the zombie as a as a distinct um, form existed the the monstrous other has been associated with the Indians all along. Hmm. Well, I'm very much anticipating that, that next work, and it sort of um, <laughs> preempts a, a, a conclusion question I wanted to ask you. But just to remind sure. our listeners, we've been we've been discussing the transit of empire, indigenous critiques of colonialism with Dr. Jody Bird at the University of Illinois. Um, we've taken up enough of your time today, Dr. Bird, but um, but I guess by by way of conclusion, I I I, I was going to ask you if you're working on anything next. I, I hope we do see a book about what you've just been discussing. I'm also just hoping you can, again, just tell us what impact you'd like to see from this book and, and what audience you envision um, that that impact can be made on with this, with this work you've produced. Okay. So um, as to the first, the next project, um, I've already got a working title for it. So um, it's still, you know, something that it's going, it's, it's a project looking at genre of video gaming and um, American Indians and the title for it is Indigenomicon. Um, wow. I'm hoping to have at least make some headway on it sometime in the very near future. Mm -hmm. um, but um, as for the transit of empire, 
I guess my my goal for the book, um, and you know, I, I, I do hope it it reaches um, a broad appeal. Um, I really wanted to try to address the key question of what um, critical theory, as it has sort of circulated within various traditions from post-structuralism, post-modernism, post-colonialism, has has um, what critical theory has um, left us as a problem with regards to indigenous peoples. I think it's in the preface I had I say something on kind of riffing on Robert Williams that says that the American Indian is a problem within um, law. And I even turn and say, well, the American Indian has been a problem within critical theory. Um, and so you know, I, by showing how American Indian studies and the work that we do as scholars um, sort of can transform questions in Asian American studies and African American studies in um, queer studies. It, 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 my hope is that I can help people understand that by bringing American Indians into the picture that these that these fields usually into the questions that these fields usually take up doesn't mean not directly assessing the, the very real um, concerns that those fields have had all along, but that by bringing Indians into it, it, it makes it much more rich uh, a project to to see how things are interconnected um, and how they are all um, in support of uh, what is an ongoing colonialism that we are all affected by, no matter how it is that we live in the United States. Dr. Jody Bird, uh, author of The Transit of Empire, thank you so much for joining New Books in Native American Studies today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great fun, and I've really enjoyed being able to talk on and on about the book. I've enjoyed it very much, too. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Jody Bird on her new book, The Transit of Empire, Indigenous Critiques of Colonialism from the University of Minnesota Press. We're on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like our Facebook page, you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.